and welcome to the August 2020 edition of Aeon's Retirement Market Update podcast. I'm your host, Ricky Marsh, and before we get started, I'd like to dedicate this month's podcast to the memory of Irene Triplett, who sadly passed away aged 90 at the end of May. In case you're not aware of her significance to the world of pensions, I'll let you think about it during the podcast and I'll come back at the end to tell you the answer. Today, I'm going to be joined by Jennifer O'Neill and Lindsay Nickerson to talk about the latest developments in the world of responsible investment. But before that, it's news time. Pensions tax has been back in the news this month. The current system's coming under increasing pressure, firstly in a paper called After the Virus, published by the Centre for Policy Studies, which is one of those Westminster think tanks. This makes some wide-ranging recommendations, including a switch from marginal tax rate relief to a flat rate bonus system, and consideration of a broader shift to an ISA-style pension system. Then the Public Accounts Committee weighed in on the issue, saying the government's not assessed whether the cost of pensions tax relief was really effective in encouraging people to save, and they criticised HMRC and the Treasury for being insufficiently curious about the different impact of tax release on different groups of people. Ouch! Is this just the usual noise we get in the months leading up to a budget, or will there actually be some bigger changes this time? Who knows, but if you're interested in where this could be heading, I'd suggest checking out the February 2020 edition of this very podcast. One thing that was promised in the last budget was a call for evidence on ways to address the inconsistency between the net pay and relief at source approaches for those earning less than the personal allowance. This arrived on the 21st of July, and it sets out a range of possible approaches, but highlights that these all have drawbacks and could introduce more complexity into the system, so other suggestions are also being welcomed. Responses to this one will close on the 13th of October. There have been some calls for the pensions regulator to scrap their proposed changes to the DB funding code in light of the coronavirus pandemic, but TPR is sticking to its guns. David Fares from TPR has commented recently that schemes with long-term objectives, journey plans and contingency plans in place have weathered the crisis better than those without. If anything, this has reinforced TPR's view that the proposed funding principles are the right ones. However, that's not to say the pandemic changes nothing. TPR will be taking the change in economic conditions into account when they move on to the second consultation on the funding code. And Mr Fares did say that the parameters proposed for the fast-track funding approach are likely to be very different from what might have been proposed at the beginning of the year. Don't forget, if you want to respond to this first consultation, the deadline is the 2nd of September. Back in May, I told you the Money and Pensions Service, or MAPS for short, had published a couple of papers setting out their thoughts on the scope of pensions dashboards and the data elements that would be required from pension providers. At the time, these were just for information, but MAPS have now put out a formal call for input on these two papers. Administrators will probably be keen to respond to this one, particularly given the amount of additional calculation work that might be needed for the estimated retirement income figures. The call for evidence is open until the end of August. On a related topic, look out for the DWP's response to their consultation on simpler annual benefit statements for DC members from the back end of last year. Pensions Minister Guy Opperman has said the final draft is on his desk right now, so we can expect to see something during August. Regular listeners will know how much I love GMP equalisation, and this month has seen a couple of loose ends being tied up. Firstly, the GMP equalisation working group has released its guidance on data requirements, which sits along the guidance they've already published on methods and the interaction with GMP reconciliation. This sets out high-level considerations for how trustees can get their data ready, and more detailed consideration on some of the known issues. HMRC have also updated their GMP equalisation guidance. This now confirms that if schemes have made a lump sum payment that now needs topping up due to GMP equalisation, making that top up payment would not trigger an unauthorised payment charge in most cases. 
That even applies for lump sums paid after the October 2018 judgment, as long as the top-up is paid after the scheme has chosen its equalisation method. However, I did say most cases, and things are never that simple. The situation for trivial commutation lump sums is more complicated, and topping those up could trigger additional tax charges in some cases. And finally, it's been a bit quiet on the pensions bill front recently, but I can report that the bill has finally been passed in the House of Lords following some amendments to strengthen requirements on climate change. This will now go back to the House of Commons later in the year, where we could see further amendments, in particular one proposed by the Chair of the Work and Pensions Committee, giving schemes the ability to pause transfers where a scam is suspected. And if you'd like more information on this or any of this month's other news stories, I'll include contact details at the end. A couple of months ago, I spoke to Chris Inman about the impact of COVID-19 on DC schemes. And when asked about lessons we could learn, he said he didn't want recent market movements to mean that schemes lose sight of ESG considerations. It seems he's not alone, as responsible investment in pension schemes has also been making headlines in the last few weeks, not least due to the launch of a new initiative called Make My Money Matter, co-founded by writer, director and comic relief founder Richard Curtis. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by Jennifer O'Neill and Lindsay Nickerson to talk about this topic in a bit more detail. Jennifer, Lindsay, welcome to the podcast. Can I just ask you to briefly introduce yourselves before we get started? Good afternoon, Ricky, and thank you very much. Um, my name is Jennifer O'Neill. Um, I'm one of the senior leads in Aon's responsible investment team. My name's Lindsay Nickerson. I'm a member of the DC team at Aon. So we last talked about responsible investment back in October last year. And Jennifer, I think you were nearly on that podcast, but you got struck down by some last minute travel issues. Is that right? That's absolutely right. Yes, um, I was uh, defeated by fog, I'm afraid, so I wasn't able to join at that time. Yeah, this is month five of home recording for me, so that does seem like a very different world. Anyway, can you give us a start just by um, rounding up what schemes have been doing in this area recently? So when it comes to responsible investing, um, I would suggest that there are two key activities that, that pension schemes have really been consolidating uh, over the past few months and, and as we've moved into the second half of this year. First and foremost, uh, we have had that continued regulatory influence, whereby uh, regulation necessitates pension scheme trustees to take their statement of investment principles, reviewing that document, making further changes to it to enhance it in three key areas. Uh, and a real focus of that is on asset stewardship and how trustees do that. And crucially, for DB schemes, they will have to now make that document public. So DC schemes have been subject to that requirement since last year, but DB schemes now also have to fall in line with that. So because of that, we've seen sponsoring employers take a far greater interest in what the pension scheme trustees are saying and doing on those matters through the lens of the sponsor's own policies and commitments. So that's driver number one. But secondly, and really importantly, there is a transition from theory into what do you do in practice? How do you think about your assets? So for pension scheme trustees, how are they invested at the moment? And is that commensurate with their thinking around responsible investing? So for example, uh, schemes which are undergoing an investment strategy review are including consideration of how their responsible investment objectives align with their broader overall investment strategy. To help them with that, we have been doing a lot of work within Aon to work on ways that we can support clients investing in a way that is uh, consistent with that. So, for example, from a low carbon perspective, from a positive impact perspective, we've been developing some solutions there. 
from a DC perspective, um, we've sort of got dual forces competing. We have the impact of the increasing regulation, which we've just covered, um, but we've also got an increasing number of members seeing the link between their savings and what they're invested in. And that link between member savings and what they're invested in is driving trustees to look at alternative investments, and that is both on a passive basis and on an active basis. How can we invest members' pension savings to do good and be responsible? I think that's interesting just in the context of what, Ricky, you mentioned at, at, at the beginning of, of this session, which is around the, the initiative which has been launched recently, uh, Make My Money Matter. Uh, that's certainly something that we've seen DC trustees recognize and, and raise with us through some of the, the discussions that we've been having with them because it's something of interest to their members. So I think that that's a really strong theme that we're going to see continuing. Okay, so let's talk a bit more about DC. There's a lot more flexibility for DC members to choose how they invest. How does that work in a, a sort of responsible investment context? And how should we think about responsible investment for DC schemes? Um, so we're spending a lot of time on that at the moment. In DC, um, we're splitting up into two parts. There's a default investment option and where members invest either through the lifestyle or the target date fund. And that's where the vast majority of members are invested. And then there's our self-select options. So at present, almost every scheme has a responsible investment option available for members to self-select if they wish. Um, traditionally, that's been largely passive. Um, but what we're looking to do and we're working with trustees is to gain a better understanding of what are their members actually expecting from their responsible investment funds? Um, the way we go about gathering those member views is through the use of surveys. So we've issued a number of member surveys to DC schemes recently. The vast majority of these cases where we have done this has identified that in actual fact, members expect their responsible investment fund to have a positive impact, not just to avoid investments, but look to bring about change. And so we're doing considerable work in this area looking to bring about impact funds onto platforms and making them available to members who wish to invest in them. And with regards to the default investment option, we're seeing increased interest from trustees as to whether members should be defaulted into a responsible investment option. So really, there's quite a lot going on and some schemes are doing more than others, but it's an area where almost every DC trustee has a lot of interest and focus at this time. Obviously, the biggest change we've seen since we last talked about this topic is COVID-19. Has the pandemic been affecting the way that investors are thinking about responsible investment at all? If we think about COVID-19, uh, there are three phrases that come to mind. One being unprecedented, the second being build back better, and the third being new normal. And those are things that, that have increasingly been talked about over the past few months since we've uh, been in this environment. And I think it's it, it's certainly the case that that has influenced the way that people think, uh, not just about the way that we as a society and as an economy are resilient to these types of shocks, but also what else can we prepare for and how might we think about that? So, for example, when we're talking about uh, building back better and the green recovery, what does that mean from an investment perspective and how does that affect the way that we make choices as to how we allocate capital and what that capital is funding? So, for example, it's been reasonably common for trustees to begin to have conversations about things like renewable energy infrastructure and uh, assets which have a lower carbon profile than let's say the broad market index does. But that's really 
become increasingly prominent here. And thinking about the energy transition and, and the way that we align with Paris Agreement over time, how do we invest in a way that's commensurate with those goals and objectives? The UK is now committed to carbon neutrality by 2050 and halving carbon emissions by 2030. How do we get there? What does that mean for the way that we invest assets? One thing I think is very, very clear is that we cannot ignore climate change, even though uh, for the time being, the terrible events of, of the, the pandemic are clearly affecting people uh, and economies in, in very significant ways. Longer term, pension schemes are likely to be asked to say and to do much more about climate change risk than they have been in the past. I think COVID-19 brings to the fore those challenges and fragilities we face as a society. So I think, in short, COVID-19 reinforces the need to think about longer term strategic risks, what they do from a sustainability perspective and how to prepare. So just expanding on um, one of the points that you talked about there, what, what do we think schemes can actually do in practice about climate change? I mentioned just a little while ago that in the future, pension schemes are likely to be asked to do and say much more about uh, how they manage climate change risk. And that is likely to take the form of mandatory disclosures for predominantly larger schemes to begin with under that TCFD framework, uh, which really sets out exposure to carbon emissions, uh, greenhouse gas emissions, etc. So that's something which we expect to come into force for pension schemes in 2022. And there's some legislation being proposed at the moment to make that happen. So pension schemes need to therefore think about this if it hasn't been something that has been uh, on their agenda uh, up until now. And one of the key ways that that can be done, uh, which is endorsed by the TCFD, is through the use of scenario modeling tools. So looking at assets and liabilities and thinking about the stresses and shocks that climate change outcomes could place on those. What does that mean for DB funding levels? What does that mean for the outlook for certain asset classes? Another thing that a number of schemes are looking at doing is uh, investing in a way which is aligned to the low carbon transition uh, and, and provisioning for that future uh, transition of assets and shift of asset allocations, uh, preempting that now by changing the way that they invest to align with that. From a DC perspective, members are really investing for the long term. So, on average, DC members are younger. Um, they tend to be more in tune with the environment. And with them investing for the long term and being very aware of climate change, there's a number of ways we can bring this into the strategy. And that's either through climate climate aware funds um, when members are young and in the growth phase, or on a passive basis as well, which allows members to invest in funds and companies that perhaps aren't tuned or tilted away from environmental concerns um, in an affordable fashion. And are we starting to see a bit more pressure on schemes to stop investing specifically in fossil fuels? I think this is uh, this is particularly topical right now, Ricky. Um, looking back to the end of March, when we really saw a trough in the oil price, it began to re-emerge in discussions. Where does the energy transition ramp up and what does that mean for 
uh, what's referred to as stranded assets, so oil reserves which is no longer economical to extract, uh, unprofitable to, to extract. So what does that mean for pension schemes that have exposure to those assets? And, and there's a number of investor groups that, that campaign on this particular issue. When it comes to certain sectors of, of the economy, so for example, universities and their connected pension schemes, Universities uh, have in large numbers committed to divestment from fossil fuels, and that often translates to uh, questions being asked of pension scheme trustees as to whether that is something that they are also thinking about doing. Now, I think what we have to be mindful of is that excluding fossil fuels is not in and of itself the answer to managing climate change risk. Uh, That is a a more widespread issue and we need to think about how climate change risk exists in a total portfolio, which is not just restricted to certain sectors. So fossil fuel divestment is something which a number of pension schemes are uh, grappling with. And, and indeed, I've had a number of conversations in the past week or two with pension schemes who are being asked these questions, uh, whether from their sponsoring employer, whether from members or whether from external interested groups. And it's really important that pension schemes develop a strategy for managing climate change risk that is thorough, well documented and well thought through. And this is one area where there is focus, uh, which is part of a much broader issue, which we need to address. So just to wrap up, I mean, schemes have probably been focused largely on the regulatory updates recently. But with that mostly out of the way now. What would you say are the key points for schemes to be thinking about next? First of all, what I would say is that it doesn't stop with your statement of investment principles. Looking ahead, you will be asked to make annual disclosures about how you've acted in accordance with what's laid out in your SIP in that document. So that is something that you will be reflecting on uh, on an annual basis. The journey doesn't stop here, therefore. We've only really just started. And I also mentioned some of those future trends coming down the line with regard to climate change disclosures. So we need to start preparing for that now. For that reason, second point, it's very important that you as trustees understand your current position and that you have a think about whether that meets your needs and what you need to support you in meeting your own needs and objectives. And finally, I just finish on the theme that that we are seeing emerge around that new normal. What does that look like? What does the future look like? How does that affect the way that we invest today? We did have a a session recently with my colleagues, uh, John Belgrove and Tapan Data, uh, which uh, focuses on, on that very issue. What we've been talking about today is certainly a component of that. Uh, but I would encourage you to check that out as well. And Lindsay, is there anything else from a DC perspective? Thanks. I think from a DC perspective, what we're seeing is members becoming increasingly aware of the value of their pension savings as a proportion of their total assets. And with that, they've got an increased focus on what they're investing in and the impact that their pension savings are having. Um, So there's a growing reputational risk for trustees and company sponsors where we have to make sure that they're aligned in their responsible investment beliefs. So for DC, I think the pressure's really on to make sure we're doing all we can. That's great. Okay, well, thanks very much to both of you for joining us today. Thanks. Thank you, Ricky. And now to solve the mystery of the late Irene Triplett. So Moe's Triplett fought in the American Civil War in the 1860s, and he applied for his Civil War pension 20 years after the war ended. 
His daughter Irene was then born when he was 83 years old and she inherited his pension when he died in 1938. That was then paid to her for the rest of her life, making her the last surviving recipient of a Civil War pension. Some food for thought there for anyone running a DB scheme. That's all for today, so thanks again to my guests, Jennifer O'Neill and Lindsay Nixon, and thanks to you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, don't forget you can subscribe to the series through all the usual places, including the Apple Podcasts app and Spotify, so you never miss an episode. If you'd like more information on our retirement solutions, or you want to feature on a future podcast, you can contact me on ricky.marsh at aon.com. Otherwise, please visit our website or email talktous at aon.com.